morning, everybody. Will you join me as I commit this time of preaching to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we pause right now to, to recognize your faithfulness to us in every circumstance. We thank you for the freedoms and liberties we have in this country to gather here and worship you yet recognize that that is a luxury not many Christians have around the world. As we dig into your word this morning, as we look at this uh, passage in First Peter on suffering, I pray that we will, uh, we'll take it seriously, that we will find encouragement from it, that we will seek your guidance, that your Holy Spirit will strengthen us to live faithfully to you in all circumstances, to entrust ourselves to you. Lord, I commit this time of preaching now to you and, and ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of First Peter by looking at chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And if, you're, uh, if your Bible's like mine, the heading above this uh, passage reads, Suffering as a Christian. Suffering as a Christian. So, it's a pretty feel-good message this morning. I guess at Systematic Theology, Jonathan said you talked about death and dying, so we're getting a little more encouraging. We're only going to talk about suffering uh, today, though actually the Passages on persecution, which, of course, can include persecution to death. Now, for a little bit of context, First Peter uh, is a letter by the Apostle Peter written to uh, churches spread throughout five Roman provinces. And his purpose in writing to them was because they were facing persecution for their faith, and he was writing to encourage them. The title of our sermon series, Hopeful and Holy in a Hostile World, is a summary statement of this letter. Christians are called to live hopefully and holy lives, even when we face persecution and suffering. So if you've been with us the last few months, you've seen this theme woven throughout our, our messages, and you'll see it again in today's passage. If you haven't already, see if I can get this right. There we go. Nope, the wrong way. Did that last week too. Okay. If you haven't uh, already, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Follow along as I read our passage this morning. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's our passage this morning. Peter packs a lot into these eight verses. As I studied it, I, I found, just, just reading through that, five different truths or promises in these verses, eight or seven different sets of instructions. So I started this 12-point sermon, and then I, I sort of backed off of that. I didn't think that was a good idea. Uh, so instead, we're going to structure the, the study of our passage like this. First, we're going to look at the reality, the reality of Christian suffering, Then we'll look at a reason for Christian suffering, and we'll conclude with our response to suffering, a biblical response to suffering. And the message can be summarized like this. God is faithful even when we suffer. God is faithful even when we suffer. So entrust yourself to him while doing good. This summary, if you've been going through our memory passages, is right out of the one memory verse, uh, which is in our passage this morning, verse 19. So with that, let's jump into our first point today, the reality of Christian suffering. Contextually, Peter is specifically addressing Christian persecution, which we could define as suffering and hardship that a Christian experiences because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is relevant because that is what the recipients of this letter were experiencing. We see that in verse 12. Peter writes, they faced a fiery trial, which means a particularly painful or intense situation. In verse 14, they faced insults. And in verse 16, they suffered for being a Christian. Early in the letter, Peter speaks to various trials they faced in chapter 1, verse 6, being reviled in chapter 2, verse 12, and being culturally isolated in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. And Peter says here, don't be surprised by this. Don't think it's strange that these trials are happening to you. Now remember, Peter, like the writer of this letter, is the same Peter who is uh, a disciple of Jesus. So when you see Peter listed in the, in the four Gospels, that's, that's the person writing this letter. So Peter was there firsthand witnessing Jesus' teaching in Luke 21 to expect persecution from both religious leaders and governing authorities. He was there when Jesus told his disciples in John 16, that his followers would have tribulation. Yet as, uh, as John Bauer just read a few Minutes ago, when Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples about his own suffering that was to come, it was Peter who took Jesus aside and Mark says, rebuked him. Peter rebuked Jesus. That's pretty bold, isn't it? 
hearing Jesus say he must suffer many things, face rejection, ultimately crucifixion, just didn't compute with Peter at the time. Why would God's promised Messiah need to suffer? And I'm sure Jesus' reply stuck with Peter. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mark 8.33. That is some rebuke. You think that stuck in Peter's memory for a while? And then immediately after that, Jesus turns, addresses the crowd with his other disciples and told all of them that following him means taking up your cross to give your life for the sake of Christ and his gospel. I don't think Jesus could be any more direct, any more straightforward. Following Jesus is not a cakewalk. Following Jesus is a call to suffer and a call to self-sacrifice. And if we're honest, I'll be honest, that, that message is not real comfortable. That is not fun to hear. And yet, as Christians, we ought to expect to be on the receiving end of hostility, insults, ridicule, and persecution. Don't be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you. And that was the experience of the early Christians. As Jesus foretold, the earliest recorded persecution wasn't from the government. It was from the Jewish leaders. The book of Acts records multiple instances where the Jewish leaders ordered beatings, imprisonment, and even executions of people who proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This later shifted to to state-sponsored persecution. In the first century, Roman Emperor Nero tortured and killed Christians. And in the centuries that followed, history records various periods of intense persecution toward Christians. Fast forward to today, 2021. Open Doors International reports that in the past year, over 4,000 Christians have been killed for their faith and over 4,000 churches or Christian buildings have been attacked. That's in 2021. A classmate of mine from Wheaton College has been a missionary uh, to Turkey for years. And I found this four-minute video clip about his experience there. I I thought it would help personalize this. So I'm going to step back and you can listen to to this four-minute story of, of David Bile. I hope that was helpful, interesting, sort of personal just because we happen to be at Wheaton College at the same time. Um, It's just one story, right? Just one story of many who have suffered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't seen that level of persecution in our own country. It would be wrong, I think, to equate the the anti-Christian sentiments that we face in this country to the persecution believers in North Korea, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, and, and many of these other countries face. In fact, we ought to thank God for the freedom 
and liberties we enjoy in this country. That said, there's no question that there are cultural and political shifts turning against Christianity here in the United States as well. I don't think you need me to list the examples. We know them well. And it's one of the reasons why we chose to preach through 1 Peter. We expect to face increased cultural and political hostility for our Christian faith. Peter is telling us not to be surprised by that or think it's strange. Having established now the, the uh, reality of Christian suffering, let's next consider a reason for Christian suffering. And before I, I get into this point, I, I want to make two disclaimers. First, this is not a comprehensive list of biblical reasons for suffering. There's books on that, okay? Not a point on a sermon. Um, and and if, uh, if you want to dig into that more, Romans chapter 5 that, that was read earlier today, James chapter 1 are excellent passages that give more explanation and reasons why God uses suffering in the life of a believer. And one other disclaimer, uh, we need to keep in mind that, that what Peter's writing here to Christians, they're Christians facing persecution. Okay, so that's the context. Suffering can take all kinds of shapes and forms, but in this particular passage, we're talking about uh, persecution. Now, I don't know about you, it sort of surprises me when you read in verse 19, and it says, let those who suffer according to God's will. According to God's will, it surprises me that there's a plan of God that involves hardship and suffering for his, for his children. You would think if, if God wanted to make Christianity like super attractive, you know, let's bring in as many people as we can to follow Jesus Christ. I would think like there'd be some promises in there that like, and by the way, you know, everything's going to work out great for you. You aren't going to experience any suffering. In fact, I found a quote online uh, that is attributed to a pastor of a pretty large church. Now, I haven't read his books or his blogs or sermons, so I I, I can't state with fact that this quote is, in fact, something he said or or wrote. So I'm not going to name him. But I am going to show you the quote because I think it, it, it gives... Uh, a hint, it gives a reflection of what an Americanized gospel message sounds like. Here's the quote. There's a belief that you're supposed to be poor and suffering and show your, humili- show your humility. I don't see the Bible that way. I see that God came and Jesus died so that we might live an abundant life and be a blessing to others. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a, a much more comfortable gospel message, isn't it? It's, it is nice. It, it's just sadly not true. It's not true. It's incomplete, maybe, is a better way of putting it. It's incomplete. It ignores a core teaching of Scripture. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in Mark 8. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. Jesus is saying that 
God had a purpose for the suffering he would endure and that God has a purpose for the suffering his followers will endure. And in verse 13, Peter provides a reason for Christian suffering. He writes, so that we share Christ's suffering. So that we share Christ's sufferings. Now, why would God want us to share in Christ's sufferings? I think one answer is that it draws us closer to Jesus. It draws us closer to Jesus. You know, we are called to imitate Christ, right? We're to be growing in our relationship with Christ. That means we are to be growing in our understanding of Christ. When you suffer for the sake of Christ, you get a small glimpse into the suffering he endured for you. If you have been reviled or insulted or shamed because of your faith, you grow an understanding of who Jesus is and how he lived his life. Here's one way to think about it. And and I'm going to admit right now, this example is on a much shallower level than what we're talking about in terms of Christian suffering. But I, I personally don't think you can fully appreciate or understand the sacrifice that your parents made for you until you become a parent. I'm guessing parents would agree with this, and I'm guessing young people here are like, I don't know, I really do appreciate my parents. But I'm a parent now, and I don't think I could read parent books when I was a young person and, 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 and hear stories of parents and yet fully understand the sacrifice my parents made for me until I had my own children. And only then could I step back and say, wow, well, now, now I understand. Now I understand. In the same way, suffering for Christ draws us closer to Jesus. It gives us a, a better understanding of what it meant to take on our sin, suffer in our place. Another reason God allows his children to suffer We see in in verse 12, Peter writes, uh, when the fiery trials come upon you to test you, to test you. So there's there's a testing or refining process to our suffering. Now, Peter wrote about this back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And and Pastor Michael preached a sermon on that passage that addressed this this issue of, of suffering and testing of our faith. So I I'm not going to dig into it now. I'd encourage you to go back if you're interested and listen to that sermon again. But I do want, before I move on to our our final point, to to address briefly this warning Peter gives in verse 15. He writes, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The principle of suffering is not a license to sin. We don't, as Christians, glorify suffering or or pursue or seek out suffering as if somehow that earns points with God. So that's not true. God is not pleased if we inflict suffering on ourselves, particularly if we're like, well, hey, if if God calls me to suffering, then probably the best way to suffer is to sort of 
live a, an unholy lifestyle and, and suffer the consequences of that. That is, that is not what we're talking about here. Peter's making that super clear. And I just want to add or piggyback onto this principle that, that this is not a justification for mistreatment of others. Like this could be seen as like as, as a justification for mistreating someone else. So I want to be super clear on this. An abusive relationship is not honoring to the Lord. An abusive relationship is not honoring to the Lord. That's not the type of suffering we're talking about here. If you're in that type of situation, I encourage you to get help. I would encourage you to reach out to one of our pastors here, Gospel Fellowship Church. We would love to help you with that. So we've seen the reality of Christian suffering. We, we've seen reasons for Christian suffering. I'd like to conclude this morning by considering our response to suffering. Now here, while Peter's uh, passage is addressing persecution, I do think that the principles that we see for responding to this does apply if you're facing any type of suffering, whether it's a broken relationship, uh, the loss of a job, illness, pain, uh, the loss of a loved one. Principles, I think, we can apply here. So first, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, verse 12. Suffering, pain, and loss are part of the Christian walk. I think it's easy to look at our culture's moral decline and increased hostility towards Christians, and we get a little freaked out by that. I've started to limit the amount of news I, I'm reading because it's so disheartening. This passage has been an encouragement to me. Don't be surprised. Don't read the newspaper and, and, and freak out. That's all I've got to say on it. Don't be surprised. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Rejoice. This is a great application, isn't it? Rejoice. I'm like, really, Peter? Come on. Seems a little over the top. And yet, this isn't just Peter like, oh, I let, let, I'm just going to say rejoice. That sounds right. And Jesus himself said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. And Paul heard this, read this morning. Paul wrote, we rejoice in our sufferings, Romans 5, 3. James wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, James 1, 2. I don't know about you, rejoicing is not my natural response to suffering, yet it's a clear directive in Scripture. I've had to wrap my mind around that more preparing to preach this morning. And what I see in, in Matthew 5.12 is this phrase, for your reward is great in heaven. I think a key to finding joy in our suffering is being ever mindful of, our eternal, of eternal matters. Right? So I don't know if there's, are there golfers in the room? I mean, even just like me, like I try. I have one golfer in the room. Seriously? And one that's pointing to the person next to me. Okay. 
wow, okay, well, so we have two golfers in the room. Then in this case, my illustration is going to be very poor. You're just going to have to trust me on this. And I am not a golfer. Like, I mean, I try, but, but if, I, if I'm on the golf course, I, I, maybe people didn't raise your hand. Okay, maybe you've tried it. If you're on the golf course and your ball is like 150 yards from the green, you know, what your job is like to get the ball as close to the pin as possible, right? You do know that much about golf. Do I need to back up? Like golf is this little ball, <laughs> right? And you hit it with these clubs and you try to get it into a hole. A five iron from 150 yards out. Okay, I, I found a third golfer. Okay, so whoever yelled out five iron. When I am, got my five iron out, what's my focus? Is my focus on the ball or is my focus on the green? Both. Oh, it's like Solomon. Um, yeah, yeah. You, so if I just look at the ball, I'm going to hit it, right? I hope. I mean, um, but I don't know where it's going. And trust me, I've done plenty of times where I've been focused on where it's going. And that's, that's sort of embarrassing, right? Because you, maybe you top it if you're lucky, but you, you sort of get that weird whiff, and it's like, well, ball in the right direction. You need to know where it's going, right? You got to look ahead, but you also need to be looking down. You have to be in the here and now. What, where is my ball right now? And okay, so maybe this isn't a great illustration, but it was fun anyways. Um, as believers, as believers, we need our focus on both, right? We need to be both focused on our future eternal hope. And we need to be focused on the here and now. When we focus only on the here and now and we see the suffering that we're experiencing, no wonder we're not joyful. That's depressing. But if we know where we're going, if we know the future hope that we have, we know the future glory that awaits us, then the suffering that we experience today, we see a purpose for it and we see... We see the future without the suffering. And that's what Peter calls us to, to rejoice in our present sufferings because we have a future and eternal hope. And that's, listen to the certainty of that statement. He writes, when his glory is revealed, not if or, you know, like hopefully, when his glory is revealed, our hope is certain. It's this eternal perspective that allows us to rejoice in our present sufferings. And this is how Peter began his letter. If you were with us at the very beginning of our, of our sermon series in 1 Peter, we were meeting at that uh, church, fellowship church up in Carroll Stream. Uh, I remember this because I preached on this passage, so it's very vivid in my memory. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Peter reminds his readers of the living hope they have in Jesus Christ and the future inheritance that is being guarded for them by God. An inheritance, he writes, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then the very next verse, verse 6, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. The, the future hope that all believers have. And then he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, you see the, 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 the shifting of focus and how our future hope 
brings joy today, even in the midst of suffering. Now, if you're like me, you may be thinking, well, that, that sounds great. That's like, that's an awesome pep talk. Uh, it just, it, I don't know, though. It doesn't sound that easy. And I, I, I got to admit, I mean, like, I need that pep talk, too, first. But the more I thought about this, the more I believed that my skepticism about rejoicing in the midst of persecution is because I haven't experienced intense persecution. Now, I know my, my son, the logic seems like, wait, that sounds like a circular argument. Um, or maybe not. No? Is that a circular argument? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> because I haven't experienced intense persecution, I'm skeptical that when I face it, I can rejoice in it. So consider what we see from the early church. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and interrogated by the Jewish leaders. Upon their release, they regroup with fellow believers and in, in Acts 4.24 tell us that they lifted their voice together to God and sang praises to him. Again, in chapter 5 of Acts, all the apostles are beaten by order of the Jewish leaders and Acts 5.41 tells us that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul and Silas inspired the followers of Christ to be filled with joy in spite of persecution in Acts 13. What is a Christian response to suffering? We are instructed to rejoice knowing that Jesus' return is certain. His victory is certain, and our hope is certain. A third response, third response from this passage, we entrust ourselves to a faithful God. We entrust ourselves to a faithful God. First uh, Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is a great encouragement to know that God is faithful in every circumstance, especially as we face suffering, persecution, and hardship. Entrusting ourselves to God means that we trust in His perfect will, in His perfect timing, in His perfect ways. It means that we recognize that our own human strength and intellect are not Enough. They're insufficient to stand up to the persecution we face. A prayer, a prayer the disciples when faced with persecution included this request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Acts 4.29. The apostles submitted themselves to prayer and asked for the Lord's guidance and strength in the face of persecution. Matthew records in chapter 10 of his gospel that when Jesus warned of coming persecution, he also told them, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
Matthew 10, 19 to 20. God is faithful even in the midst of persecution. And what can happen when we rely on the Holy Spirit for strength and wisdom in the midst of persecution? What happens? Our sovereign God can use persecution that is intended to squelch his truth and his followers to instead spread his truth and his followers. Consider what the early church experienced. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are imprisoned and beaten because of their faith in Jesus in an effort to stop the growth of Christianity. In that chapter, chapter 5, the last verse of chapter 5 reads that the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And the very next verse, Acts 6.1, says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Then in Acts 6-7, it mentions the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The persecution meant to, to squelch the spread of Christianity only grew Christianity. In Acts 8, we find Saul going house to house, dragging Christians to prison. So what happened in Acts 8? 8-4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. God used the persecution of these Christians to get them out of Jerusalem. Preaching is truth throughout the region, and we see the effects. In Acts 13-49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. God is faithful. We can entrust ourselves to a faithful God. His work, his plans, his purposes are perfect. So entrust yourself to him in the face of suffering and persecution. One more response from this passage. Continue doing good. You see that at the very end of verse 19? Peter adds, while doing good. I like that. Suffering and hardship does not excuse you from faithfully obeying God. Like that's part of the living holy and hopeful lives in a hostile world. Holy lives continue doing good. Now I get it. Suffering may prevent you from serving in certain ways. Like there's going to be people with physical limitations. There's going to be uh, David Bile can't get back into the country where he was ministering. So there's going to be ways that your ministry may be prevented. But that does not mean you're prevented from doing good. Just the opposite. Continue to do good in the midst of your suffering. Just think, I mean, I just, I just did a quick speed walk through the book of 1 Peter. I'm just going to, I couldn't even fit it all on the screen here. But let me just read to you some of the instructions Peter has already given in this letter for doing good. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be holy in all your conduct. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Keep your conduct honorable. Be subject to those in authority over you. Honor everyone. Have unity of mind. 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Serve one another with the strength that God supplies. Are you facing hardship or suffering? Or do you anticipate facing hardship and suffering in the future because of your faith in Jesus Christ? This passage tells us don't be surprised. In fact, rejoice because it strengthens your understanding of Christ and your eternity is certain. Entrust yourself to God who is always faithful and continue to do good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we again just thank you and praise you for suffering in our place, paying the penalty of our sin in our place so that we can rejoice in the future certain hope we have found in you. Thank you that you are faithful in all circumstances, that you have a plan and purpose even for our suffering. Help us to trust you more, to depend on you more, to rejoice in the circumstances we face. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide, direct, encourage, and strengthen us today and this week ahead. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.